Hello, welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari. In this episode, we do the Reformation. This is the Great Big History Podcast. Thank you for joining me. We're going to deal with the Reformation from 1517 to 1648. And the great question is, who controls knowledge? Now, I have an old podcast from like more than a decade ago. The way I used to teach this was the traditional way of, it's about how do you get into heaven? And that's a question. But then I, I heard a series of lectures that I really liked on the, on the Great Courses series on this period. And that professor was basically said, it's a, it's, there's, there's that, and that's a traditional way of talking about it, but there's a bigger question about who controls knowledge. And that's really what the Reformation is about, is, is who is going to control knowledge? And that's going to be a major question from the Reformation to, the, to science to the Enlightenment, which is really what this, the next series of lectures are going to be. So is it going to be the church who controls knowledge, or will it be the individual? That's the question. The church is the tradition. It's the traditional view. Since the fall of the Roman Empire, it's the church that said, we know what's right for you. And they were right. Why? Because they were the educated ones. They had the Bible. They had Aristotle. They had Plato. They had the great Christian fathers and thinkers. They had theology which was as close to science in the Middle Ages as science got. I mean, it has uh, Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. I mean, science doesn't have anybody like that. There is no St. Thomas Aquinas of science in the 1200s. There just isn't. So when the church said, we know, we understand, people said, of course you do. You're supposed to. The idea that the individual could control knowledge, that the individual could tr decide for themselves what the truth is, what's right and what's wrong, that's new. That's a revolution. The church was the traditional leader of knowledge. The individual is new. The church had the Bible, as we talked about, and the classical knowledge, Aristotle and Plato, the Greeks, the Romans, it had on, in its side, on its, on, in its corner, all of the collected knowledge up to that point. What did the individual have? Nothing. No, they had themselves. They had nothing. They had nothing to say, look, I'm right. That's the great question. To say, I know more than the church. I'm right and the church is wrong. Well, okay, point to how you know. They don't have anything. Not in 1500. Because the church had all previous knowledge. The Bible and Greeks and Romans. The classical knowledge. The church also had the theocentric universe. It was a, the universe revolved around God. It was God's universe, and you were an actor on his stage. You didn't have, you had a will, yes, 
but you had the will the same way an actor has the will. He put you in the, in the scene and you figured out how best to play it. You know, the Crusaders went on crusade saying, yelling, do us vault. God wills it. This is the will of God. It's what he wants. The Reformation, on the other hand, will have humanism. That, yeah, God is important. God made the universe, but he made it for us to do stuff in. Humanism, basically, at its core, says people are the most important actors in the universe. My thoughts matter. My actions matter. That humans decide for themselves how to act. And that is a huge break. It is a revolution in thought. Because it's saying you are responsible for your thoughts, your acts, your deeds. You have power over your universe. You can control the universe. You can manipulate the universe. You can do things. The stage is your stage, not God's. And we're going to talk about how profound that that change is. So um, there are plenty of, of, of instances of people making an attempt at this radical change in knowledge before 1517. It's not like just one day 1517 happened and boom, the Reformation happened. There are plenty of instances of people, of individuals, of groups who are starting to try to change things earlier. They're just unsuccessful. It is Martin Luther in 1517 that is going to create the revolution. Now, Martin Luther doesn't set out to create a revolution. He's a monk. He's not a happy monk, but he's a monk. In fact, the Catholic Church and the Jesuits later on will use his kind of not really happy being a monk and how he became a monk kind of origin story against him. So so we might as well talk about it because it's an interesting story. Basically, the story goes that, as I understand it, Luther is stuck in a lightning storm. Young Luther is stuck in a lightning storm. And he's scared. And if you've ever been caught in a lightning storm, man, with lightning and thunder right above your head, man, you have every right to be scared. You're out in the open. You're going to hide under a tree, but hiding under a tree means you might get hit by lightning. Like, you have every right to be scared. And, he's, and and as the story goes, and this is a story, but as the story goes, he prays and goes, Dear God, if you get me out of this, I promise I will be a monk. I will dedicate my life to you. And he gets out of it. And so he becomes a monk. And so part of the idea is he never really wanted to be a monk. 
he's not his heart was never in this. Now you have to understand in fifteen seventeen being a monk is a good job. Today, eh, it's all right. It's not bad. You get an education. You might do some teaching. Maybe you do some missionary work. But in fifteen seventeen, it puts you. It's like a doctor today. It it was a highly respect. You show up anywhere in any town, in the monk garment, being an educated, learned person, you are taken seriously by lots of people. So it was a good job to have, which means it's a hard job to get. Lots of people want it. Now, what the Catholic Church will later say is, when Luther starts his revolution, one of the first things he'll do is say, priests and nuns should be able to get married. And he will marry a nun. He'll marry an ex-nun, I should say, but he'll marry an ex-nun. Why does that matter? Because the Catholic Church, the Jesuits, later the Jesuits, will look at this and go, really? So let me understand this story right. He's in a lightning storm where he says, please, God, get me out of this situation. And I promise I'll never do it again. Why? 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 That doesn't make any sense. We've all been in situations, right? Haven't you been in a situation? I've been in a situation. You've been in a situation. We've been in situations where we're like, oh man, I have so effed up. I have so messed up. Oh boy. Oh, and you and you got and you're like, whoa, please, God, get me out of this, and I promise I will never do it again. Well, if you become a monk, guess what you never do again? Exactly. Uh-huh. And the first thing he does when he gets rid of the church, when he starts his own church, is priests and nuns can get married? Come on. You're not serious. This is not serious. This is a guy who probably nearly got someone preggers, got out of it, became a monk because he made a deal with God, was celibate for a while, hated being celibate, and now is revolting against the church just so he could get some nookie. You have to be kidding us. This is not serious. And that's some of the Catholic Church, especially Jesuit reaction to Martin Luther. He's not a serious theologian. He's not a serious monk. This is not a serious revolutionary. This is a guy who doesn't really have problems. This is a guy who has desires and is leading everybody to hell for them. He can't handle the deal he made, so he's trying to get out of it. That's a coward. Not a, not a revolutionary, not a leader. Now, that attitude is going to mean the church is going to mess up in handling the Reformation. It had all the advantages when the Reformation starts, and it's going to throw a lot of them away. And part of them is going to be based on this prejudice, that people are idiots, and that Luther isn't serious. And turns out Luther is an incredibly smart man, who's got a lot going on. If you read, you could read a lot of what Luther wrote or thought. Um, by the end of his life, there's what's called the tabletop, I 
think it's called the tabletop books, where basically he was so impressive to people that young men would follow him around writing everything, writing down everything he said. Uh, this happens to the Buddha as well, where they just write everything down. Um, the, the Hadith in Islamic tradition is kind of the same thing, though it's unclear whether or not um, the, the Hadith as we have it actually comes right from Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther Muhammad. But the idea is these guys are so impressive. We're going we're gonna to write everything they say is gold. And the Catholic Church is sitting there going, you have to be freaking kidding me. You really do. Really? And so what Martin Luther does when he starts his revolution is he doesn't want to rebel against the church. He doesn't want to change church. He wants to reform the church. And in 1517, the church needs some reforms. Look, I'm Catholic, and the church needed reforms in 1500. And he, there's his 95 theses, and some of them are important. Like, we don't want um, Italian priests in our German churches. Why? Because they speak Italian. No one can understand them. And the Catholic Church will say, well, yeah, but the gospel's in Latin, so who cares? And they're like, you don't understand. They do the homily, they do it in Italian. No one knows what the hell they're talking about. And you go, well, that's that's silly. And I go, no, it's not, because people still feel that way. The Catholic Church today does not have enough priests. It just doesn't. I have a, co I have a cousin who's a priest. God bless him. He does great work. There's not enough of them. When he graduated from seminary, when I graduated with my PhD, there was 20-something people in my college alone. When he graduated from seminary, there were eight there's just not, there's too many PhDs probably, but there's not enough priests for the Catholic Church. There's not enough American priests for the American Church. And so what happens? Well, the Catholic Church brings in people from Central America, from South America, from Africa, from India. And there are plenty of people, plenty of especially old people, who walk out going, he's a nice guy. And this is, they literally will say this, he's a nice guy, can't understand what he's saying. He's a nice priest, but, and then there's the but, but he's not, he's not white, he's not one of us. There is the feeling that if you, the American church should have Americans as their priests. And why do we have a dude from Cameroon as our priest? Well, Martin Luther had the same problem. Now, they didn't have, there's no African church, there's no Indian church, but there's the Italian church. And if you ever go to Italy, go to Rome, and you will see, you will think, like, in America, there is a shortage of priests. You go to Rome, there's no shortage of priests. There's lots of priests. I hadn't seen young nuns, to be honest with you. In America... For a very long time. I went to I went to Italy, traveled around Italy, plenty of young nuns. So you can imagine while these guys are sitting in the Vatican going, There's plenty of priests. Look, they're everywhere. You throw a you throw the I don't know, you kick a football and you're gonna hit one in the face. I mean there's there's priests everywhere. Like uh, not in rural Ohio there ain't. So So he has problems. He has problems with corruption. He has problems with 
the the basic ways the church works. Hey, the Bible is still in Latin. Now we'll talk about that in, in soon, but the Bible is still in Latin, which means ordinary people can't read it. Now the church is fine with that. But Martin Luther, an educated man, is like, but that's not really fair. His big thing is that you don't, don't need priests or the church to get your way to heaven. The argument is very simple. Jesus gave us his words. Follow the words and you'll get to heaven. That the church is a structure between us and Jesus. The church erected itself. Now, the church understands this because the critique of the church, of priests, of nuns, of this whole institution, is that nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus say, let's make a church. Like, he's an itinerant preacher. He walks around from place to place to place preaching. There's no institutions. There's no tabernacles. There's no... no no stained glass windows. There's the word. And the idea is, and the critique is, and, that, and this critique goes all the way back to the founding of Christianity. It is not new. It is not Martin Luther thought it up. It is a critique that goes all the way back. Is, wait a minute. Hold on a second. Jesus never said, do any of this. So why are we doing it? And the Catholic Church's response is the St. Peter response. Is the quote, one quote, there's one quote, in which he says, Peter, on this rock I will build my church. Ha-ha! And so the Catholic Church says, see, it's right there. He says, Peter, rock, church. And so the Catholic Church says, he meant literal churches, the literal church, priests, all everything that's come afterward. Critiques of that will say, no, 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 no. It's a church of the mind. It's a church of it's a church of the following. It's 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 that Peter will be the successor. Yes, the Peter will be the successor to Jesus. I understand that, but he's there to help us get to heaven. We don't need all of this structure. So this is an old, I mean, I I I I mean a thousand-year-old argument when I mean it's an old argument. And the primary problem is that to do what Martin Luther says, to do what the critiques have always said, that you could find your own way to heaven, is you need to be able to read the Bible and have an education. Which means you have to be able to read and write. You have to be able to have a Bible and print a Bible in your own language which at this point is massively expensive because you had to hand copy it. There's no machines yet. You had to hand, there's no Amazon or, or Walden books that you could walk in and go get a Bible. Bibles are everywhere today. They were hard to get. They had to be hand copied. And you know the Bible. It's thick. It's thousands of pages. I don't even... My Catholic Bible comes in at Roughly 1,500 pages, give or take.
My students complain to me about typing five pages for their papers. Imagine now handwriting 1,500 pages. And you can understand why this is expensive and hard to do, hard to get. So to do this, though, you need an education. You need to be able to read and write. So basically, you need to be an elite to find your own way into heaven. And the church is like, that's the problem. We're here to help everybody get to heaven. And here's the other thing. And this is important, and this is still important. Today, it's important. If you let every ordinary person read the Bible and come to their own conclusions, they are going to come up with some messed up ideas. One, they don't know theology. Two, they don't know the history of the Bible, much less the, the church. Three, they don't know any ancient philosophy. Four, they're going to, they're going to center on the parts that reinforce what they already believe. And that's not the truth. The Bible is not there to reinforce your ideas. It's its own thing. You have to change for the Bible. The other thing is, Bible reading is analysis 500. It is hard. It is not just open it up and start reading a section. There are parts that contradict each other. The four Gospels do not agree on anything. Even the three that agree on most things don't agree on anything. Two have Jesus being born. Two don't. All four, the only thing they all agree on is that Jesus is crucified. That they all got. But who's there at the crucifixion? They all have different people. What's said at the crucifixion? Is he stabbed? Only, what, one or two of them have he's stabbed with the spear? Not all of them. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is said in, in not all of them. The only thing they agree on is that he's crucified. Mary Magdalene and his mother Mary are there. And there's a resurrection and when he's resurrected, the first person he goes to see is Mary Magdalene. So for me, that's the argument that why Mary Magdalene and him are married. There's some cool stories about her. She follows him around. And um, she's there at his death, which means, I mean, the other dudes aren't there. I mean, I think James is there in one of the in one of the stories, James or Joseph or James and Joseph are there, but Peter's not there. The other 12 aren't there. And when he comes back, the first person he goes to see is Mary Magdalene. He could have seen anybody. He's Jesus. He sees Mary Magdalene. Why? Well, here's a secret. 
if I came back from the dead to hang out with my homeboys, my wife would be incensed if the first person I came back to see was my homeboys. You better see your wife first. You can make an exception for your mama, but you better see your wife. She won, maybe two. She should be one. So, but see, now I'm reading into it. It doesn't say that. I'm taking my knowledge of ancient civilizations. I'm taking my knowledge and I'm reading into it. It's not there. And so the Catholic Church would look at me and go, yeah, you're messing this up. Yeah, you're, what you say could be construed from the evidence. That's true. But you're inserting your own ideas. And I would say, yes, I am. Because I understand, as an educated person, the difference between the text, the subtext, and my own ideas. But I'm an educated person with a PhD and all kinds of stuff going on. And so most people aren't like that. And so they read the word and go, it says hate gay people. How hard is that? It says hate gay people. And then it's like, well, yeah, but hold on a second. Because there's other sections where it's like, you know, treat your, treat your, treat other people how you want to be treated. So if you don't want to be stoned, don't stone people. There's, it's complicated. And let's face it, the Old Testament is sexier. The New Testament is boring. Jesus in the New Testament is boring. God in the Old Testament, destroying Sodom, destroying Gomorrah, wiping out Philistines, bringing the Ark of the Covenant across Egypt. I mean, this is some badass stuff. He's committing genocide. He's killing 100,000 in, in the desert. He's wiping out Assyrian kings. You mess with the God of Egypt, you get burned, man. No matter who you are, even the Jews get burned. The Assyrians get burned. You get burned. And so if you want to scare the hell out of people, if you believe in power rather than love, you like the Old Testament. The problem is, is as a Christian, you're not supposed to really deal with the Old Testament. The Old Testament's the Jewish books. It's completely different. It's not for Christians. For Christians, you got Jesus is the way, the truth, the light. The only way to the Father is through me. And he basically wipes out the Old Testament. He says, I am the new law. I'm it. So if you're a Christian, you're supposed to follow Jesus. The Old Testament got brought in by Origen and the original church fathers in the 300s when they were putting this stuff together. Basically because there's a bunch of stuff in the Old Testament that says there's going to be a dude who comes along who's awesome. Listen to them. And it allows the Christians, the early Christians, to say, see, that's Jesus. It says it right there. Super cool dude coming along. Listen to him. That's Jesus. That's what it's there for. And dude, following Jesus is hard, man. Turning the other cheek. You don't want to turn the other cheek. The Old Testament, where you smite your enemies, much more fun. Turn the other cheek. Come on. What am I? I'm a, what am I, a hippie? Yeah, 
Turns out, yes. Oh, Jesus also says you're supposed to give up all your possessions and live in a community. So capitalism is dead. We're all supposed to be communists. Jesus didn't own anything. Everything he possessed, he possessed in common with his 12 apostles. He's constantly begging for money. He's not begging for money, but he's constantly getting money from rich people along the way. He is not even buried with his own money. John of Arimathea has to get him a tomb to bury him. To get the scents, to get the, the oils in order to do the purification rites. The point is, is that all of this is hard. And someone who says the Bible is literal has completely missed what the Bible is. The Bible is a bunch of books and stories that are, have been put together over a long period of time and changed. They are not the same. We have Bibles that go very far back and the words are different in them from the Jewish and Hebrew to Byzantine and and Orthodox, to early Latin, to later Latin, the words change. People make mistakes. People change things. People update things. People go, well, this isn't quite the word. No, Jesus can't be this lame, so we're going to put in this word. That makes him a little tougher. Why? Because in 1218, they wanted Jesus to be a little tougher. Or 845. And so it's changed, and it's changed by people. God did not write the Bible. I'm sorry, he just didn't. People did, and people have changed it along the way. All of this means that it's complicated. That it is complicated. And the church says this. Look, it's complicated, and most of you don't have time for it. And that's okay. That's our job. Our job is to get you into heaven. Trust us. We are here for you. It is our job to get you in there. You don't have to read the Bible. You don't have to know 1,500 pages. You don't have to have four different Gospels that say four different things, and you know what you do? You read them all together as if they're one story. They're not. They're four different stories for four different audiences that say four different things because they want to be acknowledged by four different groups for four different reasons. Read the letters. Same thing. Letters are all over the place. Peter's letters and Paul's letters are different and say different things and argue with each other. They're not quite arguing with each other, but you put them next to each other and Peter's saying one thing and Paul's saying something else and you're like, whoa, wait a minute. And then there's the other authors as well because they're trying to figure out in the early days what it means to be a Christian. You can't put them all at the same, one after the other and put them all the same on top of each other as if they're the same. They're written in different places by different people in different philosophies to different audiences for different needs. It's complicated. And the church acknowledges that. Martin Luther knows it's complicated too. It's okay. Martin Luther knows it's complicated. He thinks, though, that he's right. He's a smart guy. No doubt about that. 
and that if you learn to read and you read the Bible, you will come to the same conclusions he's come to, that the Bible is truth, which makes sense, right? That's, it's been the truth for a thousand years. That the Bible is truth and that if you read it, you will come to the same conclusions because you'll come to the same truth. And that's wonderfully naive of an incredibly smart man. If ever you have gotten onto the comments section of anything, Facebook, Twitter, anything, you know that the, someone posts something, people will come. If there are 10 comments, there are 10 different ways of seeing the same damn thing. So, what Martin Luther does, though, is give the impetus to humanism. Humanism existed. Humanism, but it was, it was trying to find its way. It, 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 was, it was what liberals did. And by the way, all of this is liberal. None of this is conservative. Conservative is, you stick with the church, man. You don't change. All of this is crazy-ass as left as left can go, Fox News would hate Martin Luther because he is as lefty as you can get because he's changing the ideas about everything. And he's going to be the biggest proponent of humanism, that people are the center of the universe, that people's actions matter, and it's the liberation of people's minds, new thoughts, discoveries, freedom of ideas. They can find their own way. They don't need the church. They don't need smart people, the way Plato would argue. They can do it themselves. They are the center of their own life. The most important person in my life is me. That is hugely different because in the Middle Ages, the most important person in my life is God who will set the stage that I will act on and find my life on. Martin Luther is saying, it's you. You make your decisions. You find your way. And that is liberation. That is huge. There are problems with all of this, as you may suspect. One is Martin Luther is going after the church. He wants to reform the church. But the church is part of the hierarchy. They support kings. Kings support them. The entire structure of medieval society has the church as a major part in it. And if you're going to start attacking one part of the hierarchy, why not attack all parts? If you don't need a church, the way Luther says, why do you need a king? Why do you need nobles? And what this causes is instability. Because people start to, once you liberate people's minds to think whatever they want, they think all kinds of things. And what you end up with is wars of religion. For a hundred years, there are going to be wars between Catholics and Protestants, between peasants and their nobles, between, in Germany especially, between the nobility and the kings, or wannabe kings. There is massive amounts of wars for the next hundred years, and some 30 million plus people are going to die. The next hundred years are huge. The Reformation goes, and once it goes political, 
It also goes military as, hey, I should have, I should have independence from the church. I should also have independence from my king. The same argument worked. And so noblemen attack their kings. Peasants attack their noblemen. Protestants attack Catholics. Catholics attack Protestants because, hey, the Catholic next door owns 100 acres and he's a sinner. So if I kill him, I can take his 100 acres. Meanwhile, the Catholic goes, the Protestant next door who owns 100 acres is a heretic. So if I kill him, the church will reward me with his 100 acres. And so suddenly neighbors are killing neighbors. And it's a giant 100 years of disaster in Central and Northern Europe. Germany suffers terribly. The Reformation starts in Germany. And it's, it hurts Germany the most. But it will also hurt Italy, the center of Catholicism. The sacking of Rome in 1527 by German troops, by German Protestant troops, many of whom were mercenaries for a Catholic king, but didn't like the church. They sacked Rome. That ended the Renaissance in Italy. Italy never recovered from the 1500s. Now, there's a couple different reasons why, but Italy becomes poor. Italy was the richest part of Europe up to this point. The second thing is, people are stupid, and they make stupid choices. And you'll go, hey, wait a minute, but you drive on highways watching people make stupid choices. People are idiots. And that's not me saying that. That's Plato. That's lots of thinkers. That's George Carlin. Here I have two, if you're on the audio, there are two quotes at the bottom of the page. One is from George Carlin. One is from Winston Churchill. George Carlin says, think about how stupid the average person is and then realize that half of them are stupider than that. Because average is the middle. Half of people are below average. You watch them, you watch them drive. You watch them in line at the supermarket. They make terrible decisions. Winston Churchill, the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. Exactly what Plato thought. As long as there has been democracy, there have been complaints that people are stupid and can't handle it. It goes all the way back to Plato. Any argument you've got about people can't handle the truth starts with Plato. And people make terrible things. They go, oh, the Bible. I can read the Bible. The Bible is literally true. Every word in it is true. Oh, well, hold on a second, because some of them argue with other parts of them. And some of them discount other parts of them. And it's, oh. And now you're liberating people to do, think whatever they want. 60 million people voted for Donald Trump. 65 million people, give or take, or, or 65 million people and 68 million, but 60 million people voted for Donald Trump. 65, give or take, 63, voted for Hillary Clinton. 
the 63 that voted for Hillary Clinton think the 60 million, 60 million people, one third of the country, or one fifth of the country, um, one third of the voters, no, 48 percent of the voters, right? Think they're idiots, total idiots. Meanwhile, the 60 million who voted for Donald Trump think the 63 to 5 million people who voted for Hillary Clinton that they're complete idiots. Who's right? They're all right. They all are idiots. And that's the complaint against democracy. That's the complaint against saying, you can handle it. Go off. Do your things. Just, just you figure it out. That people make terrible life choices. Three. The church and the kings aren't going to take this. They're not going to watch their authority, their wealth, their institutional privilege just go poof. And so the church and the kings strike back, and you get the Inquisition. You get heresy. The Inquisition is violent in some places and nonviolent in others. But the idea of the Inquisition is we are going to show you why you should be Catholic. One is we are going to attack Protestants as terrorists. They are against the king. They preach revolution. They're not loyal. They're not loyal to God. They're not loyal to the church. They're not loyal to the king. So we're going to treat them like terrorists. Everything that is said about um, Muslim jihadists in America was said about Protestants in the Inquisition. They're not loyal. They're violent. You can't trust them. They're, they're, they're out there lurking. The second thing is heresy. And it goes with Inquisition. Why? Because what heresy does is make thought a crime. For the first time, really, thought becomes a crime. This is an action. You were guilty if you followed Martin Luther, if you thought Martin Luther was right. You didn't have to be a revolutionary. You didn't have to attack the king. You didn't have to attack the church. If you just said, read Martin Luther and went, yeah, I like that, your thoughts made you guilty of being a traitor to the state, to the king, to the church. Heresy was about beliefs, that your beliefs were wrong and thus you were disloyal. And that's new. That had never happened before. Part of it is kings could care less. Like, they don't care what you think. We don't have the money to make an army, to make the SS to investigate and the Gestapo to find you and ask you what you think. We don't care. Don't revolt. It goes back to the Romans. The Romans could care less what you thought. Don't revolt. You revolt, bad things happen. But up until that point, right up to the point you, you revolt, do whatever the hell you want. Don't care. It's your actions that get you in trouble. Now, it's going to be thoughts can get you in trouble. So we got... The one-two punch, right? 
the right jab of the Inquisition. Bam, right in the face. And I have been to churches in Spain and in Portugal that have been built on the bones of people from the Inquisition. Tens of thousands of people will be tried and executed. And the ways they do this is basically by the same way we deal with counterterrorism, the same way we deal with terrorists. Someone turns them in for whatever reason, maybe a cash payment. Who knows? And in, in fact, a lot of them are how people ended up in a lot of the people who ended up in Guantanamo Bay ended up in Guantanamo Bay. We we came into to town in, in Afghanistan offering some cash payment. If you helped us find Al Qaeda. And so some guy walks up and he goes, hey, I know Mahmoud over there now. What they didn't tell our guys was that Mahmoud owned 30 acres that this guy had been trying to buy for 20 years. Well, they go over, they arrest Mahmoud, they ship him off to Guantanamo Bay, and now guess what happens to those 30 acres? Can be bought at a cheap price. So a lot of the, the counterterrorism, especially in the early days, had a lot of informants that had beefs, private beefs, with the people they were informing on. So the Catholic Church says, look, tell us anybody who's a Protestant, and so, and we'll pay you 500 bucks. And so they get a nod. Hey, my neighbor's a Protestant. He doesn't go to church on Sundays. He doesn't have a Bible in Latin. They go, oh, really? And so they arrest that guy. They bring him in for questioning, and they go, "Hey, look, we know you're we know you're a Protestant." And the guy goes, "I'm not a Protestant. I'm a Catholic. I love Jesus. I love the church." And they go, "Look, look, look. We know. How do we know? Because you've been informed on. Because someone told us you're a Protestant. So we know. Just give us ten names. Just give us ten names." And the guy says, "I don't have ten names. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm a Catholic." And they go, "Look." We know you're a Protestant. We can do this the easy way. Give us ten names. Or we can do this the hard way. And we could start cutting off fingers. Reservoir dog style. We'll start with the pinky. You don't need a pinky. But then we'll go to the... just. But we'll cut off the pinky to make sure you know we're serious. Then we'll cut off the thumb. What do you think? And now the guy is faced with a problem. And this is why torture doesn't work. For all the people who had this debate back in 2004, should we torture Al-Qaeda people? It doesn't work. Why? Because it gives you information. This guy is now facing losing fingers. And he's going to say, I can give you 10 names or lose fingers. Whack. Well, there went my pinky. Ah. Uh, and what 10 names is he going to give you? He's just going to give you 10 freaking names. Any 10 names that come into his mind. They're going to write down those names and go, all right, thank you very much. And then they're going to haul in those 10 people. And they're going to say, look, we know. We know you're a terrorist. We know you're a terrorist because you've been given up by your terrorist friends. Who we knew were terrorists. And then they named you. And the people go, I don't know what you're talking about. And go, of course you don't know what we're talking about because that's exactly what a terrorist would say who's trying to hide. Well, we're going to start cutting off your fingers. 
Just give us 10 names. And so one person became 10 people. 10 people will become 100 people. 100 people will become 1,000 people. And you go from one dude who had a beef with his neighbor to a full-blown conspiracy that wants to commit revolution against church and country. This is why torture doesn't work. And anyone who tells you we should torture people doesn't know what they're talking about. Because, yes, you will get information. You will get a lot of information. You have no idea if it's true. And you don't have the means to fact check. So the best one is this. Well, there's a terrorist who knows there's a nuclear device in New York. What, you wouldn't torture him? This is like the 24, the show 24 from 15 years ago. What, you wouldn't, te- you wouldn't torture a terrorist in order to find out the information of where the bomb is in order to save New York, 10 million people? And the answer is, sure, torture him. Where's the bomb? Uh, Lexington in second. Great. And then you go there. You don't know if it's right. So you go there, and it's not there. You've just wasted time. What are you going to do now? Torture him some more? Hey, let's torture him some more. Uh, it's uh, 36 in Broadway. Underneath the bench. Uh, okay. Guys, go to 36 in Broadway. So now they have to go cross town, get an Uber, get... And what if it's not there? Your whole plan for, well, there's two minutes. Will you torture him or not? You have no way of fact-checking. And if the terrorists want to blow up New York and you've only got two minutes, he can send you on wild goose chases because you can't know what's true and what's not. And what torture does is end up confirming what you thought. The Inquisition tells us all of this. The Inquisition proves all of this. If you think someone's a Protestant, they're a Protestant, and you will find all of the information you need to prove it. Cops do this too. Uh, there's, a, there's a great scene in The Usual Suspects. If a person's murdered and you think the brother did it, you'll figure out that the brother did it. You'll find enough information, the brother did it. I'm not saying all cops do this, but it's, it's the easy way you take... I mean... If a uh, it's 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 if a woman disappears, who's the first person they look at? A woman is murdered. Who's the first person they look at? They look at the husband. Gone Girl is a book slash movie based on that idea. So are plenty of other books and movies. The um, Casey Peterson pregnant woman disappeared. Suddenly became the cause celebrity on. On um, all the news shows uh, tw- on uh, like CNN and MSNBC, then she turns up dead, and then it's like, oh my God, she's dead, and her baby is dead. In uh, her 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 em- not embryo, not fetus, her, her in utero baby is dead. Uh, we should make laws against that. And the series of Casey Peterson, I think it's Casey Peterson, the Peterson part I know. I think it's no, it's not Casey. That's the woman who killed, maybe killed her daughter. Um, but Peterson, and then they found out, or they started investigating, and then they found out, oh, well, maybe the husband did it. Maybe the husband killed Peterson. And now he's in jail. 
probably murdered his wife, his pregnant wife. They didn't really look all that hard at other people. Maybe they did, but it wasn't in the news. They didn't bring in lots of suspects. They pretty much figured out it was him. Why? Because he's the first person you look at. Why? There's reasons. There's perfectly good, reasonable reasons. And the evidence will lead you there. And there you go. But the idea is that the, uh, the idea that you start from nothing and that you find evidence and the evidence brings you to a conclusion, it's way easier to start in the conclusion and to find the evidence that brings you there. And that's what the Inquisition did. That's what terrorism does or counterterrorism does in a lot of cases. We know you're a terrorist. So once you start there, everything becomes justified. So, so that's the harsh side of the counter of the counter reformation. The Church and the King strike back. The nice side, the part that I like, is the culture and the arts. Because yeah, there's the militant side, and we're going to torture people and kill people and murder people. Yes, but there's also hold on a second. We've got a thousand years of wealth, of knowledge, and art on our side. Protestants don't have any of that. In fact, Protestantism starts by rejecting all of that, all of that art, all of those stained glass windows. The, a, a good, wonderful Protestant church is not even a church. It's a room with a little, maybe a little altar, no art, where you have the word. It's the Bible that matters, not all this other superfluous stuff of wealth. And the Catholic Church says, yeah, but an empty room isn't serious. Not when we can have Michelangelo pit, paint a giant 60-foot wall and a giant ceiling and show you what the church can do. And now go to any church in Italy. Go to Roman churches. Even a dinky little nothing Roman church is covered in art, frescoes, paintings, stained glass. And the idea is to show, look at what the Catholic Church can offer you. Obviously, this is God's church. And they use their, their, their advantage in wealth and knowledge to create some of the greatest artworks that we celebrate today. The end of the Renaissance and the early Reformation. The church matters because it's got money. The church can create the Jesuits. Well, the Jesuits, I have to admit, make themselves and then go to the church and say, you need us. So hire us. And the church, but the church has the money to be like, cool, be our dudes, be our soldiers, go off, convert people, do awesome stuff. That the church can compete for ideas. They have tradition, they have authority, they know it's their game. The Protestants, the Reformation is trying to change rules of the game, but the church has tradition and authority. It has the ability to go, look at all the crazy stuff they're doing. Look at all the wars. Remember when we didn't have any of that? And people are like, yeah, I remember. That was awesome. And the church says, look, our ideas haven't changed. We will get you into heaven. And people go, great. How do I get into heaven? Just do what we say. Be nice to each other. Come to church on Sundays. You don't have to worry about buying a 1,500-page book and then reading it. Go and work. We'll handle it. You handle your life. We'll handle your soul. And people go, great. 
That's what I want. I want security in this revolution that is awesome because it, it throws a lot of individuality at a person. A lot of people say, I don't want that individuality. I want to be taken care of. I want security. I want stability. I want to live in my suburb. I want to go to work. I want to come home. I want to have a nice little dinner with my wife and my kids. Then I want to watch uh, the, the late night shows. And I want to go to bed. I don't want to now have to worry about what, how to save my soul. And the church says, that's cool. That's what we're here for. So the church can compete, but the church is going to have to change. And that's hard for a thousand-year-old institution. But it realizes that it has to change. So you get the Jesuits. You get this art. You get, refor re not reformation, but you get reforms. The, the weird thing about the Reformation is it works. It gets the reforms in the church. Not all of them, not everything in the 95 Thesis, but some of the big ones. The church does change. Now, that's huge because for a thousand years, the church said, we don't have to change. We're right. I don't have to compete. I don't have to change. And now the church changes. I go to a Catholic church today. When I was a kid, the Catholic church had an organ and a nice woman who sang. I go to a Catholic church today, and there's guitars and bass, and you're like, where did this come from? And that changed in the 90s. And I'm like, whoa, it blew my hair back. It blew my mind. Because when I went to Protestant churches, they had all the cool music. And when I went to African-American churches, it was even bigger, and you had the whole chorus and the whole thing. It was awesome. And, and you can understand why you would like that. And it's great. The Catholic Church was boring. It had its hymns. You'd stay there for 45 minutes. You'd do the Eucharist. You'd shake people's hands. You'd do a little blessing. And you're out. And it's fine. And all of a sudden, now it's got electric guitars going. And you're like, whoa. And the Catholic Church is saying, we can compete. People like electric guitars in church. We can do that. Okay. And that means the church can change, which is weird because the church is built on the idea that we know right from wrong. We don't have to compete with you. We don't have to sell the church. We're right. You come to us. For a thousand years, the church didn't change. Now it's start. Now it has to start to change. And sometimes it does things very slowly. And then sometimes it does things very quickly. So our next thing we're going to talk about is science. How the Reformation impacts science. And how science is going to compete with the church. Or not so much with the church, but with the church's claim of authority over knowledge. The Reformation starts with the idea that people can find their own knowledge. But the problem is, is where? The Bible? Okay, but that's, a com that's competition. And that's not all of life. That's one part of life, an important part of life, but not... People have plenty of questions about other stuff. It is science that's going to come in and say, we are going to figure out how to think about the world as individuals, in a humanist way, without having to rely on the church. 
And that's what we'll do next time. Thank you.